0: Uh, if you'd like to open your Bibles or your corner posts, um, we're going to be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter five, from verse eight through to chapter six, verse nine. Okay. Oh. Okay. Um, just before we start, um, somebody mentioned to me um during the week, uh, actually from another church, you never know who's listening to sermons and that, uh, about prayer. And I thought they made a really good point. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we shouldn't persevere in prayer last week. There's a difference, I think, between persevering in prayer and pestering God in prayer, uh, if you know what I mean, if I can make that distinction. So We want to be praying in faith, but that doesn't mean that there are not times or seasons in our lives where we spend extended time before God in prayer. The classic example that comes to my mind is the Garden of Gethsemane, where the Lord Jesus prayed uh, in the garden and he rebuked his disciples for not being able to watch and wait in prayer. Um, So just a little corrective there. So today we're going to be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting at verse 8, and this is God's word. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost. Through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked, a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? since he toils for the wind. All his days he eats in darkness, with great frustration, affliction and anger. Then I realised that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions and honour so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years yet no matter how long he lives, If he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness. And in darkness, its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain? by knowing how to conduct himself before others. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can meet together this morning as your people. And we pray that as we sit at your feet and listen to your word, that you would speak to us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would trust and obey you, that we wouldn't put our hope or trust in the things of this world, but that we would live for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I read a story once about a contemporary Japanese artist who made this exhibit called the Dollar Pyramid. Using hardened coloured sand he made this massive replica of an American $1 bill and he then compartmentalised it into separate boxes to form a gigantic pyramid uh, with each one being connected to the other by transparent tunnels. When the exhibition opened, uh, he then released a colony of ants into his display and they slowly eroded the image of the money. If you take a look, Up at the screen, uh, you'll see a picture as to what it actually looked like. As you can see, the artist has compiled each box to represent the accumulation of wealth. Get rich programs are often called pyramid schemes because they're based on others contributing into the financial pyramid and hopefully you'll be the last standing and at the very top. But the more likely reason the artist did this is because on the back of a $1 bill is a pyramid with an all-seeing eye. The next slide is a close-up as to what this actually looks like. It's an ancient Christian symbol representing the omniscience of God, that he knows and sees everything we do. The point the artist is making then is that while money looks beautiful and impressive, it is all being eaten away. It is not going to last. Just like any of the Egyptian pyramids, the riches it contains is going to one day be stolen or taken away. It's an excellent example of what you might call the transience of wealth. Because as we've been seeing, as we made our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's great insight is that everything is Hevel. Everything is a mist or a vapour. It's here for a little while, and then it's going to pass away. It's what the Japanese artist portrayed so beautifully, and it's what the Bible constantly warns us about. To not put your trust in riches or wealth because it is so uncertain. It's just not going to last. Now, one of the things which is really difficult about the book of Ecclesiastes is that structurally it all seems so random. And as such, it's often difficult to discern a structure as to what Solomon is saying because he jumps from one thing to another. I actually think that's a deliberate strategy on his part because that's what life is like. Life itself is random. It's not like you deal with money issues on Monday, family issues on Tuesday, and then work on Wednesday. It's um, really a confluence of all of those factors all of the time. But what Bible scholars have observed about this particular section of Ecclesiastes that I just read to you, is that it does have a deliberate pattern. And that is, the first couple of verses mirror the last couple of verses. And then a second lot of verses reflect the second last couple of verses, all of which points to the central uh, or middle, which focuses your attention on what's really important. This kind of structure scholars love. And it's what they call a chiasm, because it's shaped like the Greek letter chi, which was like in the shape of an X. Sometimes things like this can seem a little forced, but other times it's a really good way of focusing your attention into the big idea, the main point. It's like an ancient use of a highlighter. I'll show you. This is what this section of Ecclesiastes looks like. You see, verses 8 to 12 of chapter 5, mirror the message of verses 7 to 9 of chapter 6. Both talk about how our wealth or how our appetites are never satisfied. Then at point 2 in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 5 and verses 3 to 6 of chapter 6, it's all about how hard it is to enjoy wealth. Then at point 3, which is focused um, on verse 18 of chapter 5, And verses 1 to 2 of chapter 6, it's all about how God is sovereign over our wealth. You see how each time these themes are mirroring one another. But all of this leads us to the central truth contained in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, which is how being able to enjoy wealth is a gift from God. Uh, That's the very centre of this whole thing and a point of which we'll get to at the very end. Before we get to that point, though, we have to turn our attention first to the point which is that money cannot satisfy. There's an awful lot that could be said here, but I'd just like to focus your attention to verses 10 and 12. Because it's just such a perfect summary as to why living for wealth is destined to fail. Solomon says in verse 10, He who loves money will never be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And then just a little later in verse 12, he goes on to say, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, I witnessed what these verses mean firsthand growing up. I can still vividly remember lying in bed awake at night and hearing my dad, who owned his own construction business. My dad would be asleep in the next room, but I could hear him grinding his teeth in his sleep. It was an awful sound, like the grr, 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 teeth grinding against themselves. He was asleep, But in his sleep, he was so stressed about the next day's work, you could just tell it was chewing him up inside. He was so worried about the planning and organising of work for the next day that even when he was asleep, he couldn't find rest. He was always so stressed and anxious as to whether it was going smoothly, whether he could find enough work for the people that were in his company Now, to the outside world, he was living the dream. I mean, he had his own earth-moving business and he was making quite a bit of money. But the crazy thing is, is that the young guys who were working for him had a much better life than he did. Because as soon as it was time to knock off, their brains had switched off. In fact, I think their brains had switched off a bit before that. (laughs) And they'd go home and they would just party. Party. They would just rest for the rest of the day. I could see my dad when he came home, which was nearly always at night. He would leave in the dark and come home in the dark and he would still have a couple of hours work to do in planning the next day's work so that they had work to do. They didn't think twice about the work they'd done that day or even what they were going to do tomorrow. All they had to do was rock up on time, hopefully. Whereas my dad, he was never satisfied that he'd done enough. What Solomon is saying here is right. The eye never has enough of seeing. There is always more to accumulate, there is always more to purchase. It's like, you know, if you're old enough, the old Rolling Stones song made famous by Mick Jagger I can't get no satisfaction. Remember, he sings in the chorus, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no satisfaction. That's precisely what it's like if we're putting our hope or our trust in wealth. It can never truly satisfy. And it's why the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If you're looking for money to satisfy you, not only will it not, but it will poison you. Because once the love of money captures your heart, it completely distorts your perspective on everything else. It puts you in this horrible hamster wheel of never being satisfied. And Solomon makes exactly the same point in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 6. He says that for all of our toil to fill our mouths, our appetites are never satisfied. It's like, you know, the mum at home who cleans the house. You clean the house, you've got to clean it again. It's like you are hungry and you fill your mouth with food and you're full and you've got to do it again. There is always more to consume. There is always more to eat. It's like chasing after the wind. You can never, ever catch it because it can never, ever be fully grasped. Following on from this first point, the second reason why money can never satisfy is because it doesn't last. Just take a look again at what Solomon says in verses 13 and 15. Because there's a number of ways this is negatively played out. The first is that riches can be hoarded or kept to the hurt of the owner. You can deny yourself comfort and pleasure simply because you're so pressed on saving. I remember this lady in my congregation in Weewall. She had a son living in Tamworth. You know, summers in northwest New South Wales are constantly over 40 degrees. And even though uh, they could be really, really hot, her son refused to turn on the air conditioner. And so whenever his mum came to visit him, it was pretty much unbearable. In fact, it got so bad that she told me that whenever she'd go to visit, she would just put $50 on the table. And say that's to cover the cost of the air conditioning while I'm here. He accepted it. I mean, it's a bit strange, isn't it, even from your own mum? You'd think he could have been just generous and go, oh, look, mum, I love you, we'll do it while you're here. He took the money off his own mother, but even then he wasn't happy. Because he was so stingy, he was always thinking about the cost. Another bad way of using money is when it's lost in a foolish venture. It could be through gambling or greed or just not thinking through the risks of starting a certain business. Tragically, our society is littered with broken businesses which are often accompanied by broken marriages and broken lives. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes of the tragic string of suicides which followed the um, global financial crisis back in 2008. He says this. The uh, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading US real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 of his clients' money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme, remember the pyramid, slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive of HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his £1,000 per night suite in Nightbridge, London. To such wealthy men, Keller says, money was everything. It had power over them. And so when they lost everything, there was nothing worth living for. Or take another tragic example of someone who is extraordinarily rich, but has no one to leave it to. They've been so obsessed with amassing wealth that they haven't had time to have let alone raise a family. And so, who do all their riches go to? It's what Solomon rightly refers to as a grievous evil. And that's precisely what it is. But the underlying problem with all of these scenarios is this. You can't take it with you when you die. Everything you and I accumulate in this life as tangible as we it is and we think it is we're gonna have to leave it to somebody else solomon puts it like this in verse 15 of chapter 5 he says as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand Or again, he says in verse 6 of chapter 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. I've relayed to many of you this illustration before, but the funeral director who I was good friends with in my first congregation was telling me of this wealthy Chinese man who didn't have any family in Australia, so he instructed like one of the Egyptian pharaohs, that all of his wealth would be buried with him in his casket. It wasn't long, though, before word got around our small country town as to what this man had done. He had no family here on which to uh, hold any of this accountable. So a couple of people literally dug up his casket and um, took everything he owned. Although they did do him the courtesy of writing him a cheque of which I'm told he never cashed. Now, I'm not certain if what the undertaker told me is took place. could be an urban legend. But nonetheless, it makes a valid point, doesn't it? None of us can take it with us when we die. And that's why it's so foolish to put our faith in wealth. Martin Luther once said, As I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I am living. As I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I am living. But there's something else that Solomon has to say, and that the third point is simply this. God is greater than money. Let me just say that again because it's really important. God is greater than money. And that's because the Lord is sovereign over everything we have. Both the money we have as well as the talents and ability we have to create it. Both of them are under the sovereign hand of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read the warning that when the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses said that they had to be very careful that they didn't forget the Lord. Because once they experienced everything that he'd provided for them, by his own sovereign power, delivering them out of Egypt, taking them safely through the promised land, finally getting to the promised land, they will be tempted to say this, he said. My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. It's not true because remember, they don't only got the land, but they got the towns and the cities which were in the land as well that they would be tempted, Moses said, to think otherwise, to think that it was by their power and by their strength that they received all of these things. And so Moses says, remember the Lord your God, and notice what he says here, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. You see, not only is wealth a gift from God, but so is your ability to create it. Whatever talents you and I have, whatever wisdom, whatever insight, is from the hand of God. And we should never forget that central underlying truth. Now, this leads us to the very heart of the entire chapter, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 5. Because whether you believe in God or not, everything you have is a gift from him. Your family and upbringing, the opportunities that you've been given, the talents in sport or music or intellect, they are all from him. What's more... He is the one who gives us the health to pursue and develop them. That's also from his gracious hand, whether you worship him or not. But here's the thing. Not only does the Lord give us each and every one of these things, but he is also responsible for whether or not we truly enjoy them. Just take a look at verses 19 and 20, chapter 5. Solomon says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, what an incredibly encouraging passage this is. You see, make no mistake. Money in and of itself is not a problem. Money is not evil. No, the root of all evil is the love of money. Money itself is a gift from God. What is an even greater gift from God, though, and it's given to those who trust him, is the ability to appreciate and enjoy it. That's why Christian people down throughout the ages have been so generous with their wealth and been happy to do so. That's why God also loves a cheerful giver. Because Christian people know that it's not their wealth, but his. We've said this before, but without giving a church, we don't think to ourselves, it's the wrong thing to think if you think, how much of my money will I give to God? That's never been the question. The question is, how much of God's money will you keep for yourself? Because everything you have is from him. Everything that we have has been given to us by God, and so we need to be wise stewards of the gifts that he's given us. And we saw that quite clearly in the New Testament reading from the Gospel of Luke, didn't we? He was a rich man who had worked hard. He'd done well, but he was proud and he was independent of God. Take life easy, he says. Now I can enjoy everything. Now that I have this little tower of Babel of wealth, now I will be able to finally bask in my glory. But just as he comes to finally enjoy everything he has been given, the Lord takes his life away. He doesn't enjoy it. What's more, Jesus himself warns that this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. That is, he takes away a blessing or the the blessing of being able to enjoy what he has given. Are you a fool like the man in Jesus' parable was? Are you storing up riches on this earth for yourself? Or are you, are you using your riches to glorify God? That's the question. If not, Christ is asking us to do that now. He's calling on us to come to him and receive everything he has to offer. And in particular, eternal life. Coming to trust and follow Jesus, though, means that you cannot trust in his gifts but you have to trust in himself as the giver of those gifts. Just think of it like this. Imagine you're stranded on a desert. And as you walk and walk, you're looking for water to come across. And you finally come across an old abandoned well. Next to it is a bottle of water and a note. The note reads that, Older people in particular will get this. Younger people, I'll explain. The note reads that the pump needs to be primed, which means that you have to pour the water into the mechanism to create the suction to be able to draw up the reservoir of water from in the ground. So what do you do? Do you take the short-term option of drinking the water in the bottle or do you put your faith in the note pour the water out into the pump and then draw out more water than you could ever drink. You know, it makes sense when you have it as an analogy, doesn't it? But most people in the world take the first option and they trust in the riches in this world. Even though it doesn't really satisfy, it's only one glass, really, or one little bottle. And even though they know that it's not going to last, ah, we'll risk it. But what about you? We, do you trust in Jesus? Have you poured out your hope and faith in him to satisfy you with what only he can truly provide by letting go of the riches of this world? If you already are a Christian, though, then I think the challenge is to keep on removing what I call the weeds of greed. The thorns which Jesus warns about in his parable of the soils, which come in and they choke the word making it unfruitful in our lives. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. They come in and they choke the word. They are all things which every follower of Jesus has to constantly watch out for and intentionally remove. Because the more we know how much God loves us in Christ, the more detached we should become regarding the things of this world. Jesus says to the church in, La- in Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. It sounds like many people today, isn't it? Come to Christ. People say, why? There was a guy just living down the road from us where we were in Sydney, who, was, who my friend was talking to me once. And he said, Why do I need Jesus? Do you see this house? I own it. Do you see that car in the driveway? I own that. Do you see the boat parked behind it? I own all that. Why would I need Jesus? Jesus says, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. See, what Jesus offers us is far greater than anything in this world. And he stands at the door, he says, and knocks. Promising that if we'll open our hearts to him, he will come in and he will satisfy our souls with the richest of fare. Will you open your heart to him? Do you hear him knocking? to stop trusting the things of this world and to rely completely on him? Will you receive what he has to offer? Let's turn to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so gracious and sovereign that you stand at the door of our hearts and you continually knock, you continually call on us to not put our trust in the things of this world, but to put our trust in you. Lord, we pray that you'll give us the grace to do that, to trust you, Lord, to put our hope in you, to live for you and to worship you. Father, forgive us for when we fail to do so, and we pray that you would transform our hearts to be cheerful givers and to store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not take away our true riches lord thank you for this time that we've been able to meet together this morning we ask for your blessing to be upon us for we pray all of these things in jesus name amen